0: Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire.
2: It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon, Inc.
0: From Bloomberg Business Week, this is Elon, Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
2: To millions of viewers, Fox News hosts promoted Donald Trump's false theories about a stolen election, allowing his allies to spout those claims on their airwaves in prime time. But to one another, the host and top executives expressed doubts about the claims and mocked the people making them. As part of its $1.8 billion defamation suit against Fox, Dominion Voting Systems has revealed private communications of hosts like Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingraham and network bigwigs, including the chairman of Fox Corporation, Rupert Murdoch. Quote, Sidney Powell is lying, end quote. Carlson texted a producer about Trump's lawyer. Ingraham texted Carlson that Powell is, quote, a complete nut. No one will work with her. Here's that lawyer that Ingraham called a complete nut on her show. This is Coup 5.0. And the Department of Justice and the FBI really need to get after it right now and investigate all the reports of fraud. There are hundreds of them. Yeah, well, I hope uh, Attorney General Barr is doing that. Um, Very, very hopeful that he's doing that. Otherwise, we're in big trouble as a country, especially with elections going forward. Joining me is Douglas Morell, a partner at Greenberg-Lusker. I want you to start by explaining Dominion's claims. What are they alleging in this lawsuit?
3: So in its lawsuit against Fox, Dominion Voting Systems is essentially claiming that Fox knowingly published a series of statements by not only others, but by its own presenters, its own show hosts that falsely claimed that Somehow, Dominion's voting machines were responsible for flipping votes or for changing the outcome of the 2020 presidential election.
2: Obviously, a news organization is involved. So what does Dominion have to prove to make its case?
3: So Dominion has acknowledged in this case that it is a public figure, and that has a significant effect upon what has to be proven in order to prevail in a defamation case. Specifically, because it's a public figure, it has to show that the statements that were aired by Fox were aired knowing them to be false or were aired with reckless disregard for their truth or falsity. And the evidence that Dominion has presented so far would seem to be one of those rare situations where that test can be met. And so the case may well be decided without the need for a trial, or if it goes to trial, I think the evidence is very strong that that test, that
2: standard, will be met. Is there a difference when a news organization is involved?
3: The standard that applies to news organizations really isn't necessarily different from the standard that would apply in a regular individual defamation case. The fact, though, is that when you're dealing with a a media defendant, the question of publication, which is an element of any defamation case, is usually a foregone conclusion. If we were talking about a situation where you and I were having a private conversation and I said nasty things about you, that would not be subject to a defamation claim, because it hasn't been published to any third party. So whenever a media defendant is involved, by definition, there's been a publication and that element is taken care of. But all of the other elements of a defamation claim remain the same.
2: In the papers supporting the motion for summary judgment, Dominion describes people from the top of the organization, on-air hosts, people behind the camera, discussing that these claims about a stolen election were false.
3: Yeah, so what is interesting about the summary judgment papers that Dominion has filed is the nature and extent of the evidence that they've been able to accumulate through discovery. And from Rupert Murdoch on down to the on-air talent that Fox used and in some cases still uses, uh, there are a wealth of emails, text messages, and deposition testimony, which seemed to pretty clearly indicate that they knew that what was being broadcast and what they themselves were broadcasting were lies. And that is extraordinarily unusual to find in a case of defamation. You don't have the party accused essentially confessing that this is our modus operandi and indeed you know what is now seems to be apparent is that lying was a part of fox's business model and that's because they were concerned that their viewers were being turned off by having them tell the truth about what occurred with respect to the 2020 election and we're instead uh, turning to uh, other sources, such as Newsmax.
2: So is it enough that they lied? Does Dominion have to prove anything else?
3: Dominion has to prove that Fox knew that what was being broadcast were lies. And the evidence that's been accumulated thus far would seem to pretty clearly show that there was that knowledge at a point in time When it was quite clear that Dominion had no culpability with respect to changing votes or hiding votes or manipulating votes. And what's unusual, too, about this case is that in an ordinary defamation lawsuit, you might have a single story where a statement made within that one story is found to be defamatory here. You have an ongoing series of broadcast statements made by people who we now know knew that what they were saying was untruthful at the time they said it, and that there was not just one instance of this, but it occurred time and time again with multiple on-air talent.
2: Fox said the Dominion filing mischaracterized the record, cherry-picked quotes, stripped of key context, and spilled considerable ink on facts that are irrelevant under black letter principles of defamation law. Is that possible?
3: (laughs) Well, let me say this: none of us on the outside uh, have a full record of everything that has been discovered during the course of this litigation and indeed we may never have that. For example, the 192 page filing that Dominion presented is replete with blacked out information. So we don't even know the full extent of everything that Dominion knows. And it's not entirely clear to me why those redactions were made in this motion. The motion itself was withheld from public disclosure was sealed when it was originally filed, and it was only subsequently uh, publicly released, but released in a manner where we still don't know the full extent of everything that's been said. Now, it's possible that Fox is correct, that, that there has been some selective editing or cherry-picking of quotes, uh, and that perhaps context needs to be fleshed out. But that's a job that Fox is going to have to do on its own. And, you know, we will see whether they're able to put meat on the bones that it has presented.
2: So Fox lawyers also claim that everything their anchors said was protected by the First Amendment and argues that By covering Trump's fraud claims, the network was doing what any media organization would, reporting and commenting on a matter of undeniable newsworthiness.
3: So the newsworthiness defense, along with the fair and true report defense, along with the neutral reportage defense that Fox has raised in this case, have all been essentially, if not completely eviscerated, largely rendered moot by prior decisions of the court that refused to allow Fox to have the case dismissed before this point. And so those claims ring quite hollow in light of what the the trial judge has already determined. And so Fox, I think, is engaged in uh, more of a PR offensive than it is in uh, trying to convince the court that what it has already decided is wrong.
2: Doug, tell us what the judge has already decided in the case.
3: At an early stage in any case, you have the opportunity to challenge a lawsuit based exclusively upon what the pleadings in the case say, what the complaint that was filed said. And you do that by way of a motion to dismiss. In this case, the complaint Dominion filed was extraordinarily detailed. I don't recall how many hundreds of pages uh, were filed, but it included lots of evidence that it had accumulated even without having access to text messages and emails and other material through deposition. It had access to information that when these broadcasters from Fox were making these claims that, that the facts of Dominion's non-involvement in any election rigging were absolutely clear. They had been investigated. They had been adjudicated in cases in which Dominion's conduct was put in issue, and it was known to the world that these claims about Dominion's voting machines were false. But yet, even after that had occurred, Fox posts continued to make these uh, unfounded and, and in many cases, outrageous claims about Dominion, wholly uh, without any acknowledgement of the fact that these were false. And, you know, it's one thing for a guest on a show to make claims that one may not know are going to be false. It's quite another thing for the hosts themselves to be adopting those claims and reinforcing them and affirming them. And it's also another thing for those guests who are being brought onto the show are guests who are known to be of questionable character and reliability, which is another thing that the evidence in this case has already demonstrated.
2: So a summary judgment motion by a plaintiff in a case like this is highly unusual. Despite all the evidence that Dominion has put forth, do you think the judge would be reluctant to grant a summary judgment motion?
3: Summary judgment motions really turn on whether or not there is a genuine material issue of disputed fact. And so it's up to the judge to decide whether that situation exists. If it does, then the case should go to the jury. If the judge concludes that there aren't any genuine disputed facts that are uh, relevant to how the case ought to be decided, then that judge ought to grant the summary judgment motion and save everybody the time and trouble of going to trial.
2: The damages in this case, Fox says that the damages are far more than what Dominion's worth.
3: They have said that, and interestingly, they said it on the same day that Dominion's a summary judgment motion was publicly released, and so I think that that was largely a PR offensive uh, that was undoubtedly intended to distract attention away from what the evidence in the case showed, but, you know, I don't think it was particularly effective. And I don't think it's necessarily relevant, frankly, because what Dominion is worth is not really the issue in the case. The issue in the case, from a damages standpoint, as I see it, is what is the nature of the ongoing damage that Dominion will suffer in the future as a result of the conduct by Fox, and that damage is measured by who will enter into contracts with Dominion, who is already contractually involved with Dominion, but who now are concerned about whether Dominion's conduct is appropriate or not. And Fox's papers sort of deliberately dance around that question, the question of how Dominion's image will be damaged in the future by these allegations. $1.8
2: One point eight billion does seem high, though.
3: Yeah, well, it it is high, but on the other hand, you know, um, Fox is uh, not a, a small player, uh, and given that both Fox, the Fox News network, as well as uh, Fox Corp, the uh, the parent, are uh, defendants, um, you know, it's not necessarily a number that would bankrupt the company. Uh, uh... by any means and certainly if there were either a, an adverse summary judgment ruling or a uh, or a jury trial verdict uh... that was anywhere close to that uh, uh... i'm quite sure that fox would be capable of bonding as it would need to around that judgment uh, allowing them and thereby allowing them to appeal it uh... and and at least postpone for some significant period of time an ultimate day of reckoning.
2: So to sum up, tell us how strong you think this Dominion motion for summary judgment is.
3: I think Dominion's motion is both likely to succeed and likely to be a landmark in defamation law in the United States. The fact is that it is exceedingly rare to have the kind of evidence that Dominion has been able to accumulate that shows knowledge of falsity and certainly reckless disregard for the truth on the part of a news organization that has built its reputation upon effectively lying to its viewers. And so this, I think, is perhaps one of the few cases where the standards that are applicable to the defamation of public figures, which are and are appropriately extraordinarily high, will be met.
2: Thanks for being on the show, Doug. That's Douglas Morell, a partner at Greenberg-Lusker.
0: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time.
2: The prosecution has made a change in its case against Alec Baldwin for a fatal shooting on the New Mexico film set of the Western Rust. Prosecutors have dropped the firearm enhancement, which carried a mandatory five years in prison. Baldwin still faces involuntary manslaughter charges with a possible 18-month prison sentence. Baldwin has maintained that he's not responsible for the shooting of the film's cinematographer. Joining me is former prosecutor Joshua Kastenberg, a professor at the University of New Mexico Law School. Why did the prosecutor drop the firearms enhancement? Explain why the prosecutor dropped the firearms enhancement charge. The
1: enhancement law came into effect after the alleged crime occurred. And there's a basic constitutional principle that you cannot be charged with an ex post facto crime. That's a Latin term for making something illegal after the fact. And I think basically my sense of what happened is the decision to do that enhancement was probably done in the hopes of either getting a plea or, you know, an ignorance of when the law came into effect, which is somewhat surprising because prosecutors ought to be attuned into when a law comes into being. Usually there's an update that occurs. So I think It's one of those things that the prosecutor had the eye on the ultimate conviction or on a plea deal rather than is this charge the right charge to go forward on in every respect. I mean, it may have been the right charge to go forward on if it had become a law years earlier, but that's not the case
2: here. In a statement, the DA spokeswoman said the decision to drop the firearm enhancement was made in order to avoid further litigious distractions by Mr. Baldwin and his attorneys. Quote, the prosecution's priority is securing justice, not securing billable hours for big city attorneys. Two points about that. First, she's not admitting she made a mistake, and you don't usually see such snarky statements from prosecutors.
1: Right. So into your first point, I was a career prosecutor, but in a different jurisdiction. I'm surprised when a prosecutor makes a statement like that. You know, sometimes being a prosecutor, like being a judge, means you're also a punching bag that does not punch back. In this case, the defense counsel have been acting somewhat unusually. They've been restrained because in many high profile cases the defense counsel will go after the prosecutor this is not one of those cases so i too i'm very surprised at that comment the second thing i would say is
2: a win is this for Alec Baldwin, that this charge was dropped? Well, here's the thing.
1: It's not a court win in the sense that it shouldn't have gone forward anyway. And my sense is, is that the judge, had the prosecutor not caught this, had the defense not raised the issue, the trial judge likely would have raised the issue, and then it would have proved disastrous for the prosecutor at that point. But what it does, it's it's an emotional win. Because the the general public might be inclined to think, look, if the prosecutor can't get it right at this early stage of the trial, what else should we believe about this
2: case? Does it change the trajectory of the case?
1: No, I don't think it changes the trajectory of the case in the sense that both sides get to voir dire a jury. And in theory, the 12 jurors and the alternates that are chosen should have very little knowledge jury is not going to know that there was a charge that was dropped. They're only going to know the charges that are confronting Mr. Baldwin when and if this goes to trial. So it doesn't change the trajectory of the case. On the other hand, it might actually make the case more simple for both sides. And what I mean by that is this is a case at its root of criminal negligence. And the jury doesn't have to be
2: distracted
1: by more than one theory of a charge or, or multiple charges that they have to decide between. Now they're simply deciding on one charge.
2: And what does the prosecutor have to prove to make out that charge?
1: Well, it has to prove that an ordinary prudent adult would have exercised caution and circumspection before pointing the weapon and firing it. That Mr. Baldwin conduct was so far out of the norm that it exceeded ordinary negligence. If you think of ordinary negligence, you and I are playing football. We're playing catch with a football on a crowded beat. We probably shouldn't do it, but so far we haven't hit anybody with the football. We've been playing a game of catch, and then all of a sudden, we hit a beachgoer who's unaware with a football as an accident. That's ordinary negligence. People commit ordinary negligence, which could end up in a civil court, but they commit it every day. They bump into each other on the sidewalk, you know, they feed on the freeway a little bit, not too far above the the norm, and and they get into an accident. Culpable negligence, which is the type of negligence that you see in criminal trials, has a higher burden of proof. And that means that an individual is, is acting in a risky manner, and that the end result would be foreseeable by an ordinary adult of ordinary intelligence. And so what the jury's going to have to figure out is, did Mr. Baldwin have a duty to independently inspect the gun, or in some other means, make sure it was secured or safeguarded, not having live ammunition, and not pointing it at an individual before firing, you know, having failed to do that? And so the jury's going to you know, have to conclude, is this ordinary negligence or was there a heightened duty? Now, here's the thing with firearms. Unlike walking on the sidewalk, playing football on the beach, you know, even driving a car, firearm safety is in a different heightened category. And the prosecutor can argue that. The prosecutor can argue that anybody who holds a gun has an extra duty of making sure they're doing it in a safe manner. And that's fundamentally different than you know, an ordinary day-to-day activity of an adult. Then the jury decides whether this is criminal or, or not.
2: Baldwin continues to insist that while he pulled back the hammer on the weapon, he never pulled the trigger. And apparently the weapon has been tested by the FBI and there's nothing wrong with the weapon. If he holds to that, is that an uphill battle for him?
1: Well, so I think two points on that. One is, you know, the FBI... And their crime lab, they experts. That's the platinum standard. And I don't know off the top of my head that of a better and more professional uh, group of individuals than those who work at the FBI. I have no idea who handled the weapon at the FBI, but the FBI is the top of the line in doing this kind of thing. Having said that, Mr. Baldwin may very well believe that He didn't pull the trigger, and he pulled back the hammer. Human memory is fallible. That's why, for example, when a number of people see a plane accident who are on the ground, the National Transportation Safety Board, when they investigate that accident, they don't really take into account eyewitness statements with any degree of certainty, because invariably, one witness will say the tail flew off first, another will say the engines dropped off the plane, and a third will say it blew up. You know, it's how the brain receives information, stores it, and processes memory, and it doesn't do a very good job of it in stressful conditions. So I think, you know, in Mr. Baldwin's mind, the public ought to consider that he believes he's telling the truth. The scientific and engineering, the STEM data from the FBI crime lab may very well rebut what he believes. The only way normally to get his belief to a jury is for him to testify unless the prosecution gets it in, you know, for some odd reason, they open the door for it. So it can come down to this, the experts at the crime lab versus the witness. And that's not unheard of in criminal trials.
2: On February 16th, the DA added Hutchins widower to a list of 46 witnesses. What does that indicate to you? That they're
1: still building their case. And if a statement was made by the deceased, for it to be admitted into evidence. So there's a rule of evidence that if a witness is unavailable because they've died or they can't be reached, then their statement may be admissible through a third party. The courts are pretty tough on not letting hearsay evidence come in. And this Hutchins made a statement and she were alive and someone else tried to get it in more often than not, it would be hearsay. So my sense is that the prosecutor has something that Hutchins said that they want to get into evidence. And the only way to do it is through the person who she said it to.
2: There are so many civil lawsuits involved here. Do any of those impinge in any way on the criminal proceedings?
1: No, actually, normally civil lawsuits are held in abeyance until a criminal proceeding is done. And so statutes of limitations on tort suits do not exhaust if they've been held in abeyance because of a pending criminal trial. And the reason for that is so that civil lawsuits do not impinge on a criminal suit. Now, with the civil lawsuits, my understanding is depositions may have already been taken interrogatories may have already been accomplished. And and so witnesses may have already said things that could be used against them in a trial or could contradict testimony that they gave in the criminal trial. And that puts everybody at risk.
2: The Baldwin team is trying to remove the D.A. from the criminal case because she's also an elected New Mexico legislator. Does that have legs? Do you think that is a possibility? Well,
1: it's it's a unique argument. It is not, by any stretch, a frivolous argument. It's it's rooted in the state constitution. It's never been brought up as an issue before the courts before. Now, we have a part-time legislature in New Mexico, so it makes it somewhat different than the United States Congress. And a certain sizable fraction of our legislature are lawyers. There was a decision issued by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1974, making it an old decision, about the separation of powers and what the courts can and can't rule on. That decision had to do with an anti-war group that was protesting the Vietnam War, latching on to a really important provision in the United States Constitution, which is called the Incompatibility Clause, but it basically stands for the fact that members of Congress who are elected into their office cannot hold executive positions. So you can't serve in Congress and be a U.S. ambassador to Russia at the same time. You can do one or the other but an ambassador works for the president. And if your people have elected you to Congress, you have to be independent as a member of Congress. So in that 1974 case, as it percolated through the court, almost every judge that touched that case at the district court, at the Court of Appeals and at the Supreme Court, the justices agreed that congressmen who held military commissions in the reserves and in the National Guards were violating the incompatibility clause because when they got called to duty, they were in the chain of command of the, of the sitting president, and therefore were not independent members of Congress. But then the Supreme Court ruled it's a political question, meaning that is a decision that can only be answered by Congress itself or by the voters. Now, this case is somewhat different because Alec Baldwin is affected directly. So he has standing to bring this issue before the court. But then he has to articulate a harm. And what is the harm to him personally that this special prosecutor, the appointment of the special prosecutor, has to him? I mean, does he have a right to choose who's prosecuting him? The answer is he doesn't. On the other hand, do the people of New Mexico have a right to make sure that the three branches of state government are doing their jobs and abiding by the Constitution? And I think, in a sense, the Baldwin defense team has a right idea on the state constitution. Having said that, I'm not confident at all they'll prevail because they can't really articulate a harm to Mr. Baldwin.
2: Thank you so much. That's Professor Joshua Kastenberg of the University of New Mexico Law School. You're listening to Bloomberg.